This episode is sponsored by the Star Jelly Files podcast. We love a good story, don't we? I think anyone that knows us knows that. And we know you love good stories, too. That's why you should be listening to the Star Jelly Files podcast. The Star Jelly Files is a weekly science fiction and fantasy podcast that looks at a world in which we are not alone. There are entire universes out there that we can't see, and the Star Jelly Files tells stories from those universes. Life forms previously unimagined. Lives lived behind a veil we couldn't peek behind. Until now. Elizabeth Hamlet writes, produces, and voices these stories. The Star Jelly Files podcast is enthralling, entertaining, and the perfect escape from a world that can sometimes be a little too ordinary. Find the Star Jelly Files wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm terrified of just everything right now because I uh, I have to pee already. So, shit. <laughs> no, powering through. I got a bladder like a canteen. By the way, I'm Scott. And I am Amber. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, we are here this week with your historical crime bonanza we're gonna dig into a hell of a case oh my gosh one for the books and the movies and so we'll be talking about that before we get into that uh your weekly reminder that our patreon is awesome and you should be over there uh giving us five bucks a month in order to listen to our four weekly old tiny crimey episodes where one of us tells the other two uh, a story from history that the others may not know. And we also have in there the monthly big bonus episode that we call an extra extra. And those are super fun too. We have a really great one this month. It is so fun. So uh, actually, I think by the time this episode airs, it'll be around the time that it uh, that comes out. So I can go ahead and say that it is going to be murders in our birth years. <laughs> mm. Very excited about that. So yeah, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. There are over 70 bonus episodes there for you to enjoy. It's gonna, it's just a fantastic time, and we have so much fun, and we really think that you would enjoy it. I'm so old, my crime is whenever Oog killed uh. <laughs> Mine was definitely someone with big hair. I'm sure of it. <laughs> As is mine, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so... We are talking about Amy Archer Gilligan this week, and we'll also be talking about her next week because this is going to be a two-parter because I got really, really deep into the uh, the articles on newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. And she, got, the, she got out of hand is what she got. Out of hand. <laughs> I got absolutely out of hand. Uh, the, the Hartford Current had uh, just amazing articles about this very, very detailed, some of the most detailed articles I've seen in, in any of my research. 
And uh, on on the day that everything broke, they had a four page spread starting on the like page one. And it was almost all about Amy Archer Gilligan and the facts surrounding this case. So, yeah, it was really, really in-depth. And that gave me so, so much to work with. So, yeah, this is going to be a two-parter. So uh, this, you know, episode is, is obviously vital. And next week's will be, too, unless you really like being left hanging, which, um, weirdo. So <laughs> That's we all. We talked about a lot of people left hanging. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we yeah. do. You're not wrong. Sometimes left electrocuted, sometimes left guillotined. So uh, I just wanted to note, I'll, I'll be using the word insane at times as regards the, the principal person in this case. It, I, obviously, this is not common or accepted terminology these days, but usually it's either from a quote or it's kind of, if I'm not using it in a quote, I'm using it to sort of emphasize how people viewed mental illness back then, because it really was this, uh, oh, well, that's insane, which means there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and let's not try treating anything. Let's just put people away. Get me and the it'll... leeches. I've got an idea. <laughs> Get me the ice cream scoop. It's time for a lobotomy. That you doesn't know, happen in this case. I think a rubber hose and cold water is a perfect, perfect example of fantastic mental health treatment. Obviously, we're going to beat the demons out of her. Yeah. So, yeah, that word comes up a lot in this one. So, we're talking about Amy Archer Gilligan. So let's start with her early years. She was born Amy Dugan in uh, 1868, 1869, or 1873. I saw so many different birth years. I was like, what is going on with this lady? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, she was all over the place birth-wise, birth year-wise. And, but she was possibly born on Halloween, which we like to refer to as Spooky Ween around here. I like to refer to that as my anniversary. <laughs> That's right. So she was born in the small district of Milton in Connecticut, close to the town of Litchfield, which it's just not a pleasant name for a place. It just doesn't, it sounds too close to like ditch, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Like Milf Town sounds pretty nice. Well, Milton, but. Oh, I thought you said Milf Town. Uh, really, the only fun fact about Milton that I could find is that it's the the entire district has been on the National Register of Historic Places since 1986. Like I've seen like individual buildings and sites, but never an entire district of a town. So that's pretty impressive, I have to say. Her father was James and her mother was Mary. She was one of many children. She was either the seventh of nine or the eighth of ten, somewhere in there. Not quite the baby of the family, but close. Now... This family, they, there were a couple times where I, I struggled to find particular information that I was searching out. And it's because you can't necessarily verify that somebody you read about in a newspaper article is actually the person you think it might be because there were a lot of people with that same name. So I'm going to say may. They may have been a little rowdy. I found reference in 1868 to a James Dugan, so Amy's father, and his wife in Hartford, Connecticut, which is only about 40 miles from Milton, charged with assault and battery on a Mrs. Ledwick at the Rocky Hill Stone Pits, which are just a little south of Hartford. So it's hard to say. It could have been a different James Dugan. Very, it very well could have, because there's also other references to James Dugan scattered throughout that time period. There was one who was a bishop who had to be committed. There was one who was swept overboard from a ship during a storm. 
There was one who definitely wasn't the James Dugan I was thinking of because he was way too young. And he also died at age 25 when lightning struck the house. What was that name again? <laughs> James Dugan. Uh-huh. That name. Say it again. Uh, well, see, I don't know. I don't know. You said that all Jameses are evil, but I don't know. I didn't say they were evil. I said they all had problems. Okay, well, I guess these Jameses do have problems. A lot of them turn to evil. I think it's just the fact that it's such a common name. You could probably say the same thing about Charles's in the time period. Or Henry's. So... But there, there, there is something about this family. Uh, there's, there's a certain pattern that's repeated with some of the children. They're said to be very bright and, and perfectly, you know, just run-of-the-mill kids growing up. But then they would hit their 20s and stuff would just go awry. And now I hear what you're thinking. Yeah, your 20s can be a very turbulent time. But one sister threw herself out a window and hurt herself to the extent that she was an invalid. <laughs> she would also attack people probably before the window incident. I'm going to guess there was one sister. Uh, no, sorry. There was a brother who spent his days playing violin in front of a mirror, but it also seems that when he wasn't doing that, he had some homicidal tendencies and he was committed. There was uh, another sister who was restrained at home and not allowed to leave. That's that's new to me. I, I haven't heard of that particular method of... Usually they, they toss them in an asylum somewhere. I mean, I, I guess you have the comforts of home forever. forever. Sounds like last year. <laughs> the past I, year of our lives. I kind of had a theory about this. Uh, it is a very triggering theory, so there is a trigger warning coming up here. I think I think these kids once they got to a certain age they were systematically molested by by the father. I mean that's entirely possible and it didn't even necessarily have to be the father it could have been you know a, an uncle or a, another a cousin a member of the family of yeah. some kind because we do know that very frequently it's a member of the family that is you know actually abusing someone in those cases that's the higher likelihood it's certainly possible it also could, could just be um, genes or it doesn't even have to have to be a, uh, a sexually abusive environment. It could have been a, a physically or and or emotionally abusive it, environment. It's, it's that rapid turn. It, it's that rapid turn that, that bugs me. It's like, you know, they're all very bright until they get to this point. And there, there are studies out there that show that teenage years are kind of like, like a high time for, for molestation to happen because the children are starting to resemble the partner whenever the father kind of fell in love with the mother. Now the daughters are starting to look like the mother whenever they fell in love. Uh, creepy. Yeah, very, very creepy. I'm not excusing it by any stretch of the imagination. I am, I am one to think that I'm not pro-death penalty, but honestly, rapists and child molesters... Sorry, we need those organs for harvest. You've you've lost all your you've lost your kidney privileges, and we're going to start giving them to people who can use them better than you. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong about that, but I think we also have to keep in mind that there's there's other factors that could come into play. Like for instance, schizophrenia. The the most common time for the symptoms of that to start showing is in the twenties. Mm. Mm. And I think it's it's the same with 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 other mental illnesses. I mean. 
My, I think, you know, I, I've suffered from anxiety and depression and a very mild form of, of, of OCD. And those didn't really start manifesting until I was in my 20s. So I think there's, we can't say for sure. And I'm also not diagnosing any of them with schizophrenia necessarily or anything at all. I'm just saying that those, those, there's, there's a lot of different factors. There, there's a lot of possibilities here. It's, it's kind of scary how many there are. So uh, Amy did have schooling. She went to the Milton School for uh, her grammar school. And she attended high school for part of the time, but not the full time. And then she was at the New Britain Normal School when she was in her early 20s. And that, that was, doesn't sound ominous at all. You know, well, the normal school. I don't know why they call it that, but it was it was the very first training school for teachers in Connecticut, founded in 1849. Pay no attention to the door with teeth. This is the normal school. <laughs> Those windows so, aren't eyes looking at you. Nothing strange here. Look at the name. Normal school. <laughs> it's 100% normal. normal. Now, Amy seemed to flounder a bit. And just a, a note, I'm going to call her Amy for a lot of this until she gets married because I feel like it's confusing to be like Amy Dugan and then Amy Archer and then it, it, it's a Amy Archer Gilligan as that, that progresses. Eventually, I'll start calling her Archer and Archer Gilligan, but it's just, it's, it's too many last names. That, that third one is one too many, so I'm going to just I'm, call I'm her totally Amy. I'm totally okay just saying Amy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course you are. So, <laughs> so she... There are about three but, people that are listening understood that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> she seemed to flounder a bit. Uh, at one point, around age 24... She told her family that she was working at a department store in New Haven, earning $2 a day. But when her sister came to see her, she found Amy living on the streets. So that was all just a complete lie. And for two weeks, Amy refused to go home. And they actually, at the end of that two weeks, they were like, all right, enough's enough. They went to New Haven and they retrieved her. She did use her training from the normal school. (laughs) To do some teaching in 1893 and in 1895, there were references to her teaching in local schools in Connecticut around the the general Milton area. This this is not exactly someone you want molding young minds. Uh, There there are a couple stories about her. A roommate from this time period later said that Amy frequently would, would cry and have these nervous attacks for no apparent reason. She would, quote, buy the supplies of a bakery wagon as it passed the school, dismiss the pupils, and hold a picnic. Like, just, I guess spontaneous picnics aren't the worst thing, but she's just stopping school in the middle of the day to sit there and eat cake. I mean, okay. okay. I would I, love I to be in that class. Great. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I would yeah. fucking ace the hell out of that. Scott eats so much cake. It's. <laughs> And this this roommate also noted that she was extravagant in other ways. She loved to hire horses and buy candy. And it seemed like this wasn't necessarily something that it was within her reach to be doing frequently. And that extravagant nature of hers, we're going to see popping up a lot. Let me tell you, in interesting ways. One school let her go because they were not satisfied with her disposition towards scholars. She got hired as a governess, and that family agreed with the previous school. They asked for Amy to be taken away from their family. They did not want her around anymore. Mm. So, 
Why wouldn't they want Amy around? I mean, I would love to have somebody that looks like a golem cross-dresser teaching my kids. <laughs> now, in her later years, yeah, but I found some pictures from even around the time that I think, you know, everything really came to light. And she didn't look, she didn't look uh, too bad. She just looked, you know, kind of average. So, but it was, uh, she did say later that at some point during the 1890s, she had gone to school for nursing. There's no record of that anywhere. And she had no diploma to show for it. But she was like, I graduated. I'm a nurse. So 1896, she got married to James Archer in November of that year, actually on Thanksgiving. The, the newspaper had an announcement Invitations have been issued to the marriage of James Henry Archer and Miss Amy E. Agnes Dugan at St. Anthony's Church, Lithfield on the 26th at 10 a.m. It will be remembered that about a year ago, Miss Dugan was a school teacher in District Number 2, and Mr. Archer was night operator for the PR and NE Road at this station. And so it's weird that they're inviting people like that was like a week before the wedding, but whatever. And now, some of her behavior the day of the wedding was described as odd, and I agree with that description. She hired 10 hacks, which is not any of the things you're thinking of unless you're thinking old-timey, and then it's true. It, those are just carriage cars for hire, so like old-timey taxi cabs, essentially. And she insisted that these were for her guests, but she didn't have any guests. So they're just 10 empty hacks. So uh, a sister later said she was always borrowing money wherever she could get it, running up bills and lying about them. Ew. She did like to do that. Yeah, she, she's got a lot of issues with money. And she also has a lot of issues with the people around her. She had this, this persecution complex. She always thought... The people were talking about her or scheming against her, her sisters, her neighbors, anyone who got you know close to her. She immediately thought that they were out to get her. And she would tell this to other people, you know, like, I think my neighbors are out to get me. I think they're talking about me behind my back and they're going to try to do something to me. Now, into this obviously great environment for a child, the Archers had a daughter, Mary, in December 1897. That would be their only child. Uh, James Archer would later also work as a train dispatcher. And now, here's here's the thing. Most accounts have the couple starting up as caretakers in 1901. But there was a little bit of a precursor to that. Because newspapers uh, mentioned that in, in Hartford, the, in 1899, there was a lawsuit that Mrs. James H. Archer, so... A Amy Archer had against the city regarding the care of two paupers who had been ill. They say paupers a lot also during this period. Like they're, they're just, they're poor people. Like it's the <laughs> 1700s. And then right? they brought in two paupers and a serf. Yeah. And so she had, she had taken care of, she and her husband had taken care of these paupers and that was, she was trying to get reimbursed from by the city for that. The suit was for $100, which was $3,300 today. Their names were C.M. Jennings and wife. Yeah. <laughs> Women don't get names. You know what's great for historical research? A, 
Initials. Always call everybody by their initials. It makes our lives 120 years in the future a lot easier. And B, not giving women their actual names. Look, here's the deal. Back before the 1950s, you had four kids. Uh, if you had four girls, the first three were always named Mrs. And you just left that shit blank for whoever decided to take them off your hands. Uh, your fourth child was called Vagina Destroyer. And then that was it. You didn't have any more kids after that. <laughs> well, yeah. Now, this suit was actually withdrawn in December 1900. And I... I did look because I was very curious about, you know, the fate of these two paupers, C.M. Jennings and wife. I looked so hard. I looked everywhere. I did my best. But with such scanty information, it is really, really hard to actually track those people down. I was just really curious if they were still alive at the time of this suit for for reasons that I have and you'll maybe learn about soon. Mm. But I feel like this is a precursor where she and James are like, hey, let's take care of people, kind of, and then we can get money for it. But their first mistake was taking care of, of people who didn't have money, and then they learned from that, apparently. So I know somebody who wants to make a living running an animal sanctuary. You don't make a living running an animal animal sanctuary. You win the lottery, then you run an animal sanctuary. Because if there's anything, if there's anything that's going to net you less money than taking care of the homeless, it's taking care of animals. They literally do not have pockets, people. <laughs> so then, this experience very very close in their history, they run into John D. Seymour. A little bit about John D. Seymour. He was born in 1820 in Newington Junction. He was one of four children. This was interesting. His parents were Jeremiah and Emily. They were born less than three months apart, and they died one month apart, both aged 80 in 1867. It feels like they just had to be on Earth at the same time, barely any more or less. That is really sweet. It, yeah, it just feels like they had to be together. They had to be here together at the same time. And then that was that was it. So I, I thought that was very, very sweet. He, John Seymour married Abigail Wells in 1852. And she was only five years younger than him. The two of them had six kids. Four were still alive as he was in his final years when he knew the archers. There was one girl and three boys. It's weird to refer to them that way because they were actually at the time all adults and they were they were scattered to the winds. They were living in Tennessee, Georgia, and Chicago. As far as the other children, one died of infancy in of cholera and the other died in infancy of unknown causes. I I appreciate that little faux pas you made there. Died of infancy. God. It, it's it's both a faux pas and also accurate yeah yeah at I, the time. I died of infancy oh <laughs> he was 23 and died of infancy what a baby <laughs> uh john d seymour was a member of the congregational church in his town he taught sunday school he represented the town in the legislature for two separate years in 1869 and 1871 
He made his living from farming and livestock. He had a 96-acre property, so lots of land for him to mow or maybe have the goats eat the grass, whatever. That's a lot of work for a woman to do. <laughs> his health started declining in the 1890s, and his wife's did too. In the paper, there were frequent mentions of illness for both of them because they did that. They would tell you when somebody in town was sick, you know, like Mrs. John D. Seymour is ill and has taken to bed. She is expected to recover, you know, or whatever. It was very, very invasive, it feels like, but I guess it was a public service. Good or... news for everybody looking for a house. No, just... you know what it is? Because, like, now we're horrible people. If you do this, you're going to get, like, a home invasion. But, like, back then, they would read the paper and be like, oh, she's sick? I'm going to make a lasagna. Or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, your neighbors would come and help you because they saw in the paper that you were sick. That is true. That is true. I think I think you're very right about that. It just still feels very oh, much that's, like... That's because we're horrible people now. Like, if they put that in the paper, you're, you're going to get shot in your own house we're, while you I'll, have the flu. They were horrible people then, too. I think we just live in a horrible city. But, you know, not everybody was nice. <clears throat> we're doing the show, Amber. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, his wife really started to decline in the 1890s until July of 1901 when she had what sounds like a stroke. Quote, Mrs. John D. Seymour had a shock last Saturday evening. Although able to speak on Monday, she did not recognize anyone. She has the use of her limbs, but is confined to the bed. Yesterday, the attending physicians gave no hope of recovery. And I guess, in addition to what Amber said, that would also give people a chance to come and see you one last time so that you would know. Yeah. I guess uh, they, they do that in The Sims when I'm playing. It'll pop up like, your friend so-and-so is getting old. You should go visit them before it's too late. And the next thing you know, they're a ghost and your Sim is sad for like five freaking days and it's ridiculous. So, uh, God <laughs> she... damn, I hate when that shit happens. Yeah. Mrs. Seymour... Uh, Abigail, she died that August in 1901. It was said that despite rheumatism that had kept her from being very mobile the past few years, quote, throughout all her sufferings, she manifested uncommon cheerfulness and interest in all the affairs of her friends. So she sounds like a nice lady. Sounds like a fucking busybody to me. <laughs> Friends, not in like you know, like people she didn't know or whatever. In her, in her she, friends, she, she was sick in and nobody. Lives. She was sick and nobody wanted to say it. I'm the one. I'm the brave one. A fucking busybody. <laughs> Anyhow, so I think she was a nice lady, and she at least died a natural death and lived uh, into you know like her 80s ish. So their kids were living out of town as I mentioned earlier, and they had all done lots of traveling to come into town when Abigail got sick. John Seymour's siblings and parents had passed, and so he was pretty much alone, and it seems like he needed caretakers. And so there's the archers right there. They move into his house, and they start caring for him. Sometime in, in 1901, I believe it was in December of 1901. And that goes on for a couple of years until Christmas Day, 1903, when he passes. It's weird that there's so many events that are happening on holidays. We already have her being 
born on Halloween. John Seymour died uh, on Christmas. And then there's going to be a, uh, coming up here in a little bit, there's there's going to be a Valentine's Day event too. So it's, it's just weird to me. I've never had that happen before in a case. So he uh, appeared to be the last sibling of his family remaining. There were only two brothers-in-law that survived him, according to the obituary. And now, now here's the thing about old-timey newspapers. Sometimes they squish a whole bunch of events into one article, but there's no transition, there's no break, there's no signal that you're moving on to another topic. So you had the details of his, his death and who survived him and all that stuff. And then with absolutely no break, the very next paragraph, the patrons of the Newington Public Library are requested to see that all outstanding books are returned to the library this afternoon or evening as a new catalog is to be made and no new books will be given out for one week. It's just jarring. I don't like it. I'm sorry. Do you want a hug? <laughs> Thank you. That would be nice. Sorry. <laughs> Social distancing. I'm going to have to wait yeah. for it. Rain check on the hug, I guess. Rain check. The funeral was held in his home three days after his death. And... He just seemed like he was a pretty nice, normal guy. He, you know, he did a lot of stuff in politics and in, in, in his local church. He, he farmed, just a regular guy. He, he did have his, his heirs, his children. They put the house up for sale almost immediately after his death. He died in December and then in February of the next year, there were notices in the paper that the, the property was for sale. Uh, the listings noted that the, the barn had been burned down but did say that it was a nice, you know, modern house. Now, the archers stayed in the home. They did not leave. They were paying in rent. They were bringing in boarders for extra money. Generally, these boarders would be elderly, and the archers would also care for them. There were some sources that said that the heirs were actually responsible for this arrangement, that they were turning this into a care home. I honestly... I don't really believe that because they were actively trying to sell the home throughout 1904. So my personal theory is, and you can put absolutely no stock into this if you want. It's it's your call. But my personal theory is, is that the archers were doing something, either manipulation or convincing or even maybe making it hard to sell the property in order to keep their their kind of practice here going. That That's my thought but I could be wrong. No, you're right. You're right. They, it seemed, it seemed exactly like that. Yeah. I, it didn't seem like the, the heirs were really interested in this, or maybe they were kind of passive about it, but then why try to sell the house so quickly? And then throughout the rest of the year, continue to try to sell it. It doesn't feel like that was actually something they wanted to do. They just kind of were stuck with that. And they, they really were. The house didn't sell until 1907. And that same year, James Archer resigned from the railroad due to bad health. He was 48. The Archers then proceeded to buy a new house in Windsor, Connecticut. It was a 12-room brick house plus a barn all on one acre of land. It's kind of a lot to squish onto an acre. Yeah. I was just saying a barn on one acre of land. Enjoy those five tomatoes. Yeah, right? Now, it, they bought the house in 1907, but they stayed at the, the Seymour house until March 1908, or April, actually, 
then they moved. It seemed like everything kind of took a little while. And so this new place in Windsor, Connecticut became the Archer Home for Aged People. And the it was, you know, a proto-nursing home. The mission was to care for elderly men and women who didn't have relatives nearby who could care for them and also make sure they weren't being taken advantage of, but who had money to pay for their care. The deal was that the archers would care for them for the rest of their lives and provide suitable burial, generally for a flat fee of $1,000, uh, which comes out to 33000 I think, today. I? I have that somewhere else in my notes. It's further, but because I got out of hand, I have a lot of notes. So, oh, here it is. Yeah, $30,000. Or some people would pay a weekly fee if they didn't want to commit to the whole situation. But there was there were contracts in place for some people that this was going where they were going to live for the rest of their lives. The archers were going to care for them and bury them. And Amy started being called or telling people her name was Sister Amy. Uh, it was a good deal. I mean, it was a, it was a heck of a. Hand them over. Give us the money. What was it? A thousand dollars? Give us yep. a, give a thousand bucks. We'll we'll feed them, clothe them, diaper them, uh, make sure they're okay, and then bury them for you. That's that's a pretty damn good deal. Yeah, there's the, the phrase "too good to be true" pops into my mind for some reason. Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> so. Yeah, in July of 1909, there was a situation. The Connecticut Humane Society was called out to the house. Now, this we ran into this once previously with uh, an old newspaper article that mentioned the Humane Society. It's, it's not the Humane Society that we think of now that takes care of animals. This seems to be more of a general social welfare uh, type organization. Maybe like um, an early mishmash of like child protective services and adult protective services, something along those lines. So they came, they checked out the situation. They did find that things weren't, weren't quite as bad as reported, but there were some things that needed to be fixed. They said the ventilation had to be improved and there was a room that needed a window. And one of the Humane Society agents was actually a builder. And he said, hey, if you get the window, I'll install it for you. And they were like, okay, sure. And then they never called him to do it. So obviously they weren't going to live up to those expectations. Now, the complaints came from somewhere. And it came from Lucy Durand. She was a patient at the Archer home. And uh, the keyword is was. I guess had bed would be more appropriate uh, because she, she had become close to the neighbors of the house. She would tell them how bad things were at the Archer home. And once Amy Archer found out that it was Lucy who had called them in, Lucy's life took a turn. So, quote, Mrs. Archer took it very keenly to have the Humane Society visit her home and felt very hard towards Lucy Durand, the patient who made the complaint. And as a result, she had her examined by two doctors who declared her insane. Two doctors, you say? Two doctors. How many leeches? <laughs> it did seem actually now a, a lot of blame is given to Mrs. Archer, but it really seems like it, it seems like 
James Archer was was pretty uh, active in this whole effort as well. It, this was a joint effort between the two of them. As for the report from the doctors, they quote, found her excitable and irritable to a morbid degree, childish and puerile. She annoyed her friends and neighbors with her stories, many of which were not founded on fact, end quote. Mm-hmm. So, I, I get the feeling that if anybody would talk to to either of us, especially Amber or me, they'd probably write down pretty much the same thing. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, can they be, might. <laughs> I can be irritable to a morbid degree. That's for damn sure. <laughs> Scott just sat there. He wouldn't look me in the eye. He just kept playing with, with a transformer he called Starscream. And then he said aliens were real. Uh, he didn't believe in reincarnation. We were talking about cheese. And... <laughs> And I just, and then he started to look out and go, let me tell you about all the true crime facts I know. We all <laughs> well, got very scared. <laughs> <laughs> as for she annoyed her friends and neighbors with her stories, many of which were not founded on fact. Um, I'm a writer. That's, that's pretty much the description. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's your job. <laughs> yeah. I annoy my friends and neighbors with my uh, fictional stories. Yeah. So I guess what happened was they, they, the archers had the doctors examine her. They got permission to have her committed. They invited Lucy Duran to go out for a ride, and she went. And she never returned to the archer home. They took her to the asylum like you take a dog to the vet, like saying, like, oh, we're going to go to the park. We're going to go to the park. And then you take them to the vet. And maybe nothing bad happens there. It can be fine. But it's still, they definitely, like, tricked her into this. <laughs> they they threw a ball and she ran after it, but it was still in their hand. Scrafty yeah. bastards. Exactly. Now, you should note that Lucy Durand was a patient of the home, so she had an agreement with them. She had paid the archers $1,000, that's $30,000 today, to care for her up into her death and pay for her burial. Now, she was in the state hospital in Middletown, and they were paying $2 a week, which is uh, $60 today, for her board. But that was split with the state. The state took care of the rest at $150 a week. And another a quote regarding Lucy from the newspaper, there are many persons in Windsor who think she was not crazy. So, Well, she was seems- a woman, so it was just a foregone conclusion. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that seemed to be the case back then. One other thing that people in Windsor thought was that the Archer home must have a pretty bad rat problem because Amy Archer was just always buying arsenic to take care of those pesky, pesky rats. It wasn't a, It wasn't just her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. But she definitely, she, will, she, she, she made some big purchases. Uh, I so, love a little bit later, they went... They, like, talked to her, and she went, yeah, well, sometimes I'd send some of the residents out to buy arsenic because I didn't want it to look suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's definitely not something a guilty person would do or say. Not at all. So then we come to the McClintock. McClintock? McClintock. I'm going to go with McClintock. McClintock lawsuit. This was brought against the archers in 1909, and it got some attention from the local press. Now, they keep on using this word attached, and I think, as as best as I can tell, it was kind of that time period's maybe legal terminology for property 
that was associated with a lawsuit. So like if you're suing somebody for something, you, you might sue them for, you know, have their house attached to it, almost like a, a, a lien, but before you get to the point of, of actually having a lien on your house. So that's that's kind of what I think, but anyhow. Ar- this, this was the headline. Archer Home in Windsor Attached. Complaint against treatment for old people. Mr. and Mrs. Archer charged with abusing Mrs. McClintock. Place once investigated by Humane Society. Brevity is not our strong suit. <laughs> so, yes, this is December 1909. The suit was brought by Teresa McClintock and her daughter, Narcissa. That's a new name for us. I like it. Narcissa. I, mean, it, I do yeah. like that. Yeah. And so they were uh, requesting $5,000 in this suit, which is $151,000 a day. Now, they said that in November, they'd hired the archers to take care of Teresa. And that was on a week-by-week basis. And here is from the newspaper. On that date, the mother entered the home of the defendants and remained there about 12 days. The complaint accuses the defendants of misusing and abusing the plaintiff, who is a cripple and falling ill with a complication of diseases and failing to care for at such times as she needed care and refusing to administer to her wants when called upon and leaving her to suffer from severe chills without giving her water and medicine and upbraiding and abusing her for calling for assistance. Brevity isn't our strong suit, did we mention? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, She also suffered in body and mind by reason of the defendant's neglect. The plaintiff was allowed to remain in a filthy and unclean condition in a room which was filled with impure odors and improperly ventilated and thereby suffered in body and mind and has been sick and enfeebled thereby. Thereby twice in the same sentence. What is happening? (laughs) So this lawsuit was going on and there was an incident that, that would come out later and this is this is where we see really some of this weird behavior of of amy archer's presumably really popping up because she wrote a note and gave it to teresa but she said hey your daughter narcissa gave me this note to give to you but really it was from amy it was written by her and she basically forged it and this letter is Oh my gosh, it is something. It basically tells her, uh, when I do come visit you, I hope I shall hear something pleasant and agreeable and not any more fault finding as you are in one of the best homes of the state and you are paying the least and have the best room. So I know you cannot fail to appreciate it. I know I ought to pay them a great deal more, but they know we are poor and are willing to take care of you. I told them you did not require anyone up at night with you, and you don't. They are up until 11 o'clock, and all your wants and needs can be attended to before then. When they go to their rest, do not call them out of bed after that hour, as they need rest, and you disturb all the others, which, of course, they will not put up with, and if there is no need for it. And it just really, it basically is... uh, Amy Archer, in the the voice of Teresa McClintock's daughter, castigating her for asking for help, saying she's very repetitive. You know, you must not expect them to get out of their bed comes up like seven times. She talks about how lovely they were uh, to her. How good the Heavenly Father is to us that you have such a lovely home with such a beautiful class of people. She is freaking 
complimenting herself in this fake letter. Stop begging them for monster energy drinks and quit complaining that they canceled your favorite anime. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is possibly my favorite part. You must be reasonable. If you are, you won't have any trouble. And be thankful to them, for I don't know what... And then here, the writer wrote, they, and crossed it out, and said, we would do if they would not keep you. So for a second... Yeah, for a second, Amy Archer showed through there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with pronouns. I, I just picture her writing the note and she writes down they and she went, crosses it out, just like one single line through it. We, who, got that one. Clever girl. <laughs> you know, giving herself a little pat in the back. Yeah, it really is. That's exactly what she's doing. And then there's almost a little bit of a threat towards the end. If you can't get along there, what do you think I can do for you? You could not get along in the hospitals, and this home is known everywhere. You would soon be known as disagreeable, and the next thing, you could get no home anywhere. We are poor, and you are very fortunate. Thank them for me, your loving daughter. Don't be a disagreeable Dawn. Try to be a dying Dave. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just so, reading that letter to me was just so mind-boggling. It's... I, it's just, can you imagine getting that? You're in a nursing home and you get this letter that basically is telling you how you need to behave and you think it's your own child telling you this, but it's actually the person who's supposed to be taking care of you, just like trying to get you to shut up after 11 o'clock p.m., no matter how cold you get. At, at like 10.30, be like, give me a fucking blanket. Exactly, I guess, I suppose. But still, if you're not cold yet, I don't know. They weren't really taking good care of her. It comes out. Later, Narcissa McClintock would tell the press that she went to see her mother as soon as she heard that she was having a rough time. And she'd been in communication with Amy Archer, and some of Amy's behavior was making her nervous. And when she went to see her mother, her mother begged to be taken from the home. She said she'd had a chill, and when Mrs. Archer finally came, she was very ugly to her, told her to shut up. And after all that, Teresa McClintock was very afraid of Amy Archer. So at this 3.30 p.m. visit, Teresa McClintock's hair was uncombed. The commode was sitting in the middle of the room full of waste. There was food left out from the night before, and her mother's nightgown was stiff with egg and coffee uh, since she'd been given at least some food, but not a napkin. So, you know, she just basically had to fend for herself there and use her nightgown. And, you know, when her mother was like, I got your letter, Narcissa was like, uh, what letter? I didn't write you a letter. Sorry. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you need to be uh, admitted to our home if you don't remember writing this letter. Maybe another thousand <laughs> bucks, I think. Uh, be sure to drink all that. Sometimes the arsenic sits on the bottom. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. We've been taking plenty of true crime breaks to play Best Fiends lately. It's great because it challenges your brain with fun puzzle levels, but it's a casual game, so it doesn't stress you out. We all play and we absolutely love the adorable characters. 
Raise your hand if Poppy Axolotl is your favorite. Amber, you are aware that podcasting is an audio medium, correct? Fine, I'll narrate it. We're all raising our hands! <laughs> and now it's time for a level check. Scott, where you at? 963. Ooh! Woo. I'm at 1609. And I am at 3626. Oh! Oh! oh. That, that's like a knife uh, to the gut. <laughs> I think I deserve an evil laugh. <laughs> Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store today or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So, because Narcissa McClintock had paid by the week instead of a lump sum, she was able to take her mother out and uh, get her to the hospital. Take her mom out. Well, I guess somebody oh. isn't. <laughs> somebody else is doing some uh, parent dealing. I know what you meant. I'm just being an ass. You do. You do. <laughs> and you are. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> it is. So... Uh, the article about this lawsuit noted that at the time of the filing of the lawsuit, probably a dozen elderly people lived in the Archer home. The Archers filed a counterclaim against Narcissa McClintock, saying that she'd misrepresented her mother's conditions when making arrangements for her to stay at the home. So all this is going on. There's a lawsuit against them. And as it's still ongoing, in February of the following year, James Archer died. The cause of death was said to be Bright's disease slash kidney failure, although the, the death was said to have occurred quite suddenly. And the funeral was held on Valentine's Day. So there is another holiday. Well, she seems... Okay, so Amy seems to be a very dramatic person. And I don't think these holidays are necessarily an accident. Like, obviously, her birthday is uh, not in her control, but I mean, what what better way to get attention than to bury your husband on Valentine's Day? Or if the man that you and your husband are caring for dies on Christmas Day. Exactly, exactly. And for somebody who loves to like embellish stories and tell stories, these are like very like dramatic things. You know what I mean? So like she's getting off on this. Yeah, you've got it. You've got a good point on there. Now there was a life insurance policy on James Archer, which Amy had had the foresight to take out just a couple weeks before. Stunning. Um, I know, right? What a coincidence. Now, something that was noticed was that she was pretty liberal with money during that period. There's, 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 there's the extravagance coming up again. She would buy cut flowers to put on James's grave in the middle of winter. She got silk gowns for her daughter, Mary. They were called unbecoming, which I think generally means they were just, they were too old, you know, too, too adult or too fancy for a 13-year-old, because that's how old uh, Mary was at the time. This was a really random thing. Among her strange acts was the taking down of ceilings. What? What's happening? That's also called the removing of the second floor. I guess so. I don't know. And then on that same remodeling track, she also wanted to remodel her parents' home 
And some of uh, the later information would come out that, you know, this was whether they wanted it or not, which they didn't, uh, according to, to some accounts. But despite their protestations, she hired workers who just showed up one fall day to do work. Total surprise to her parents. They were carpenters and bricklayers just popping up at the house and bringing all these supplies. She sent four new stoves, even though their current stoves were fine. The repairs and remodel that performed, were performed here were said to cost about $1,800, $52,000 today. But it was said, just kind of alluded to, that someone else ended up paying for it. So basically... It, it's kind of this weird... It, it almost feels like hoarding behavior without the actual hoarding. Yeah, I did think of hoarding when uh, during quite a few different details of this. That did pop up. That's a really good point. Yeah, there's there's something there. And now the thing is, is that later there were there was also test contradictory information coming out that no, she didn't actually do all this by herself. She did it with her two sisters who lived there. Her parents were fine with it. So it's really kind of like it, it, it's it's kind of he said she said as far as that's concerned but the speculation is that if, if this was all amy she was doing it in order to try to get the title to the house by investing in repairs and remodels so maybe seeing that her parents were on the decline because they would only last a, 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 like four or five more years after this she was like, well, if I put the money in the house, then no matter what happens after they die, I can say, well, I invested money in that. It must be mine. So it's sort of like it is it does have that hoarding sort of feeling to it because she's in a way trying to lay claim to something by investing in it. Uh, yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. There's there's something there to it. And then well, I, I mean, they, she might have been afraid that the parents were going to leave the house to her sister's. So she's like, well, if I do this, then they're going to be, like, obligated to leave it to me. Yeah, yeah, there is kind of that that possibility and that feeling there. And then as far as the hoarding is concerned, Scott, you're right on there because she sent her parents around this time some supplies. So she sent them an, an, a, a one single shipment. It contained pepper, spices, syrups, candies, and 30 bottles of ketchup. Why do you Some, need 30 bottles of ketchup? Somebody she's likes the, baked beans, sloppy joes, and uh, just it's a good condiment. She's the original Sam's Club. Mm-hmm. So the thing was, there was only her parents living there at the time, plus her two sisters. But even like when all this was talked about, that stuff sat there for years. They never went through all the ketchup bottles. It was way too much ketchup for four people to go through. Hot and day sitting out on the porch. Oh, it's a hot one. Break me out one of those bottles of ketchup and a straw. <laughs> yeah. When questioned as to why she had sent all this, she said, I'm rich and I'll do what I want. Basically. <laughs> so among all this, you know, remodeling and ketchup sending, in May, uh, the, the year that James died, the lawsuit was settled. She had to pay an unspecified sum to the McClintocks, and she also was not allowed to bring a lawsuit against Teresa McClintock's, quote, and she made a retraction of anything she might have said as to Mrs. McClintock being addicted to the use of intoxicating liquors, end quote. So somebody was a lying. Mm -hmm. So the family was starting to get kind of worried seeing some of this behavior here and there. 
And somebody who was really getting worried because she saw all this on a daily basis was young Mary. In 1913, Mary went to Amy's sister, Catherine Dugan, and said, and Catherine seems to be kind of the designated keeper of the siblings. <laughs> she's the one who's everybody, she's the one who everybody's like, well, you know, you'll take care of this, right? And she's like, I guess, I mean, God, nobody else is going to do it, so I guess I have to. And I identify. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, yeah, Amy, Mary went to her aunt, Catherine, and said, my mom is addicted to drugs. There's a problem. And it seemed that she really, really, uh, Amy really liked her morphine. She liked, it, she liked it a lot. Catherine would later say, quote, sometimes I found Amy lying down at the home in Windsor or just recovering from a stupor. And during such times, she talked at random. At another time, she was found at the telephone, talking to nobody but holding the hook down. Mary said her mother often had imaginary talks over the phone. Well, morphine's mm. fucking great, let me tell you. Mm, I don't like it. The one time I've had it was right before an endoscopy, and I immediately, as soon as they put it into the IV, I got this rush of just awfulness. I did, I did not like it at all, and that was the endoscopy I woke up during, so... I enjoy morphine. Mm, I get it. Morphine's great. I I react weirdly to stuff. So So the family had a meeting about Amy's behavior. And, of course, they appointed Catherine to go talk to her and and see what was going on. See, you know, do we need to commit another sibling? But it seems like Amy kind of changed the topic either then or soon after that. She got everybody thinking that everything would be okay because she announced that she was engaged. So she would have a man to take care of her, which we all know just totally tames any problems you have. Oh, my God. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> so in November 1913, she married again to Michael Gilligan. Oh, yeah. Her first marriage, her first wedding was on Thanksgiving. Another holiday. I, for- I forgot that one. I was so happy to hear he made it off the island. Yeah, yeah. Michael Gilligan. I did, in fact, in my notes, my heading for this section is Gilligan's Island. Oh, of course. (laughs) Of course. I'm going to double check and I will get back to everyone next week as to whether the second marriage, if I can find out if it was also on Thanksgiving. I'll I'll look and find where I found that information. Uh, So because I'm, I'm... I don't know if anybody else is curious, but I'm just curious if she also got married on the same holiday again. <laughs> like, just adding credence to the whole loves to do things on holidays, kind of for the attention. So, uh, the announcement was kind of interesting. I guess it wasn't on Thanksgiving because it was on a Tuesday, but probably pretty close. The many friends of Mrs. Amy E. Archer and Michael W. Gilligan will be surprised to learn that they were married on Tuesday. Be very surprised to learn. Yeah, no, we had no shocked. idea. <laughs> Somebody hand me a thesaurus. I need some more words. <laughs> so now, okay. He had five children uh, from previous marriages, three boys and two girls. One of the girls had died young and he'd been married twice. He had some money. He wanted to invest in the Archer home, which it's also weird because later there were statements 
that she was giving him money to help him fix up his home. So it's like, what is what here? Who's doing what? But he was considered a prominent member of the community. When they got married, he was 58. She was who the hell knows, because we can't figure out when she was born. And he was a member of the local fire company. He had been its chief for two years. So he was he was one of the one of the guys in town, you know, people knew him until he died. Very soon after this marriage, this, this wedding happened, she didn't even there. There wasn't even really any chance for the honeymoon period to, to wear off. The So it was February of 1914, an acute bilious attack, which is basically like bad heartburn. I mean, like <laughs> it's it's a weird thing to die of. This was kind of sweet regarding the fire company. In appreciation of his long term of service with the company, the members voted to place him on the exempt list to remain an active member of the company for life. Aww. This honor has right? Yeah, that's sweet. And it was it was a very this was not something they did all the time. This honor has been conferred on but two other members of the company. So then we get to the big WTF of what is even happening at this funeral because uh, speaking of hoarding, I guess one thing that Amy Archer Gilligan liked to hoard was priests. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of opposite of the way things usually go. <laughs> she had six priests at the church to officiate the funeral and three or four at the vault where his body was temporarily placed. It was only temporary because she wanted to build him a mausoleum. Now, I, I'm not sure... If this is, this is a word problem for me, but it's, it's some algebra and I'm missing a variable or something because I'm not sure whether it's six priests at the church and then a separate three, three or four at the vault, or if it's six priests at the church and then those six priests head towards the, the vault and two of them get lost along the way. Either way, it sounds like the beginning of a great joke. It really does. Six priests walked into a church. Oh, and again, tons and tons of fresh flowers, which remember it's February in Connecticut. Uh, that and, and not in a time when shipping was super easy. She couldn't just call 1-800-Flowers or go to their website and have the local floors. You know, like this is, they're expensive. They're expensive even when it's the summertime and they're in season. So it's definitely, she, she spends, spends, spends. But his will left everything to hers supposedly and her persecution feelings and her paranoia these seem to be increasing she always thinks that people are watching her she's complaining about it she's worried about it but she also seems to have this heightened sense of her own importance i guess that goes along with the persecution complex like if you think everybody's watching me you must Part of that must be because you're you're very important enough for them to watch and take their time out of their day to be spying on you or whatever. But also God. She thought God was she was she was more important to God than other people because her prayers were answered more quickly than others. Not since Rockwell has there been a more clear cut case of paranormal. Yeah. I do enjoy, though, the thought that you could you could take this and she's like, oh, God answers my prayers much faster than he does other people. For example, <laughs> like he's a fucking like he's a fucking pizza delivery joint. 
And then, well, well, I just live right down the corner from God, so they always get my pizza to me first. Well, my thinking is, is that she's like, yeah, God answers my prayers more quickly. Like back in, in February when I said, I, dear God, please let my husband die. And the, you know, the arsenic in his, in his wine had nothing to do with that happening very quickly afterwards. That's my thought. <laughs> so, uh, and she also, around e- Easter of this year, she donated $1,000 to the Catholic Church and $200 to the Protestant Church. So Buying my way into heaven. <laughs> right? She said that God told her to do it. Just go. in case she was wrong on the first one, she might be right on the second. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 1915 rolls around, and Lisa, Lucy Durand actually comes back into the picture. We see some more of her. Uh, she was still in the asylum. This is six years later. I mean, yeah. And so apparently this came up because Amy Archer Gilligan had stopped paying for Lucy's board at the asylum. And Lucy had become what they called a town pauper. There's that word again. I know. And it seems to be almost in an official sense. Like she's a ward of the town. They have to take care of her. They have to pay the share of the bill that was being taken care of by uh, by Amy Archer Gilligan before she stopped paying. And so it's, it's definitely, it's kind of this weird thing. And I, I, I do, I do feel like, okay, it, it's good that they're at least, if they feel somebody is, is, is dealing with mental illness, even though they're going about taking care of it in the wrong way, at least they're trying something. At least the town is like, well, we must take care of our mentally ill people and pay for them to be, you know, in, in institutionalized. So at, at least there's that, I suppose. Not just, I guess. I guess. I mean, I'm really trying to find find the bright spot there. So, uh, Amy Archer Gilligan's response to this was that there was about six hundred dollars left of the original one thousand that had been part of the the, the bargain she the contract she'd made with Lucy Durand, and all that was in the hands of a lawyer. She wouldn't get it until Lucy died. Which doesn't make any sense because even even if Lucy's not in her home, she's still supposed to be paying the two dollars a week. So why would you intru- why would you take that out of uh, your your usage? You know, you're sp- if you're taking money from people to care for them, shouldn't that money be readily available to you? So that feels like a big fat lie to me. I'm I don't know for sure, but it just seems like a lie. Mm-hmm. She also had this whole story. Well, oh, you know, I didn't pay, but it was just an accident. Um, and she, of course, of course, in her letter to the superintendent of the asylum had this whole, you know, she started the letter off talking about how she had only not paid because she'd been distracted by her mother's death, which I get that it, it did happen around that time. It is distracting, but it feels like she's very much kind of using it. That's oh, just sure. a feeling. Yeah. So now, uh, she, she said it was an accident, but the officials were like, well, it's an accident that happens quite a bit. So, uh, pay up, pay up, pay up, pay up. So, now, as regards Mrs. Durand, a reporter went in, up to the uh, asylum to talk to the superintendent, and he, he was able to interview uh, Lucy. And so, he, the superintendent said, we have never had any trouble with Mrs. Durand here. 
She is old and somewhat feeble, but she could be taken care of in a private home all right if there was such a place for her to go. She's a bit crotchety at times, but she's a nice, quiet woman. I wouldn't ask for a better patient than Mrs. Durand. Did she write that letter too? <laughs> well, no, that was the superintendent talking about Mrs. Durand. He was talking about Lucy. Um, so it, basically it actually kind of, it, it puts Amy Archer Gilligan in a bad light because it's like, hey, she's she's not, she doesn't belong here. She's, she's not asylum material. Somebody in a private home could take care of her if there was such a place for her. But the last time she was in a private home being taken care of, those people had her committed to this place. So... Imagine being committed to someplace and they commit you someplace else. God damn. Yeah, it feels like a feels like a bit of a merry-go-round. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's not pretty. Um, some more stuff would, would come out eventually uh, about her. Uh, she said that Amy Archer Gilligan would forbid her from going outside and talking to people. And whenever Lucy disobeyed... Amy Archer Gilligan smacked her. So wow. not great. And even said, it, it seems like it might've even been, there might've been a punch. She doubled up her fist and struck me. Damn. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But she seemed to be doing pretty well at the asylum. She said, I'm happy here. They are all good to me. The attendants are kind and the doctors have been nice to me. Yes. I'm happy here. I couldn't ask for anything more. And I'd rather go to hell than go back to Mrs. Archer's home. Whoa, that's something you nice. don't put in an ad. <laughs> yeah, right? That's a bad Yelp review to get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that came out uh, eventually, but it, it, not yet. That, that was, it was still just basically like at, at this point in time in, in 1915, it was just kind of the scandal over... Amy Archigillan not having paid and Lucy was like, I'm fine. And the superintendent was like, she's okay here. She's, she's fine. She, I don't think she belongs here. She could be taken care of elsewhere. And, you know, but we, here we are. And I'm apparently as the superintendent of this asylum have absolutely no control over any of it. So bye. So, and apparently when uh, Durant was interviewed by a reporter, she was said to be a very ordinary elderly woman Quote, was calm and quiet, talked with a stranger without nervousness. And apparently this, this fee was paid and Amy Archer Gilligan got caught up on, on the boarding fee for the asylum eventually, but this was kind of like did draw some attention to her. So, but she continued running uh, the Archer home. But then uh, a little bit before this, in, in May of 1914, there was a death at the home. Now, it's, you know, it's a nursing home, essentially. You're going to have that. You have people there who are, who are sick, who are elderly, who are in fragile health. And so you, you just expect deaths. But sometimes they happened with some, a little cloud of suspicion around them. And so this one, the cloud of suspicion, it took a couple years for that to actually coalesce and become any direct action. But it started that May... 61-year-old Franklin Andrews, a patient, or as the Amy Archer Gilligan called them, an inmate. Oh, my the... God. Oh, yeah, it's all over the place. It's, it's inmate, 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 left and right. I had, I had to, like, train myself to replace inmate with patient. I should have just wrote, written patient and then did a control F. Uh, 
why even bother at that point? You know that you, like if there if she comes up to you and says, "Oh, isn't it great? Your grand your grandpa's going to be an inmate here." Like what's the point of even caring about like an elderly person in that? It's like going to a birthday party at a children's hospital. What's the point? Yeah, it it definitely feels like uh sort of it doesn't have the same connotation as patient or client, does it? No, absolutely not. <laughs> At all. So, Franklin Andrews, he was 61 years old. He had entered the home in September 1912 after treatment in the hospital for rheumatism. And then that May 29th, 30th, 1914, he was doing some yard work around the house. There was, it said he was painting the fence, the house, as in the Archer home. So he's staying there. He's paying to stay there, but he's doing physical labor feels kind of wrong. I mean, I know he's 61. He's on the young side of most of the patients there, but it still feels like uh, he was he was in the hospital for rheumatism. Should he be painting a fence? Your grandfather's not allowed to die until the mo- lawn's mowed. Yeah, right. So all who saw him doing this, this work at the house said he seemed he seemed okay. But his sister, Nellie Pierce, said that she got a call from Amy Archer Gilligan that night around 10 p.m. And Amy told her, look, your brother's a little, he's a little sick. He has some boils on his neck. And Nellie Pierce was like, well, should I come down there? Should I, should I come to see him? And Amy was like, that's, that's not necessary. Everything's fine. But despite all that, Pierce went up to the Archer house the next morning, first thing, and when she arrived, Amy Archer Gilligan said, oh, by the way, about 10 minutes after we talked last night, yeah, your brother died. Wow. I didn't feel like I should call you back. I figured I bothered you enough for one night, so, uh, yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) Right? And, oh, oh, you you want his body? Oh, sorry, even though it's, like, less than 12 hours after... I've already had that taken care of and I've sent it to the city. You, it's, it's all done. So now the cause of death here was ruled to be a gastric ulcer and Pierce started getting kind of suspicious. She, she thought some, there were some things not quite right. So after all this happened, she was going through her brother's things, his personal effects, and she found a letter from Amy Archer Gillian to uh, her brother, Franklin Andrews. This letter asked him for a loan of a few hundred dollars. Or it, it actually started, it was like, I wonder if you could loan me a few a few hundred dollars or as near to 1,000 as you can get. Look, that's a range. And insisted that this loan had to be kept a secret. She was crying poor throughout the whole letter. I have all these bills I have to pay and I have so little cash. She calls him my dearest friend in need and said that she would pay 6% in advance. I don't know if that's like, it's a weird way of phrasing things, but it doesn't matter because he never got it. So uh, Nellie Pierce, seeing this letter, is like, well, I wonder if he did it. She checks her brother's bank book and finds that he did indeed take out $500 from the bank right at the same time as the letter was written. Now. This actually was a pattern that patients at the home experienced. They would give money to Amy Archer Gilligan, and then conveniently, they would die. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is damn convenient. 
I need to figure out how to make that happen for me. Yeah, yeah. In fact, at one point, one man took all of his life savings from the bank. That's a total of $3,000, gave it to uh, Amy Archer Gilligan, and then he died very soon after that. But you very know what? Like, what happens to the people that don't give her money? If you do give her money, you die. What happens if you don't? <laughs> I think she's persistent and she would just keep trying, is my thought. But a lot of these people were very, they were kind-hearted. They, they, they didn't really see any. Yeah, and they, they, you know, maybe some of them felt like, well, at least I'm being taken care of. And plus, like, I got such a good deal. Maybe some of them got fake letters from their children telling them they should really be kinder financially to the Archer home. You know? Yeah, true. So, yeah, that happened quite a bit. And now, granted, that man that I just mentioned who who died after giving her three thousand dollars, he was eighty seven years old. It's like I said, they are there are quite a few elderly people, people in 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 bad health. But it also is like, well, doesn't that make it a little easier to pass it off if it's not so much a natural death? You know? Yeah. So now, Nellie Pierce was not one to just, you know, sh shrug her shoulders and move on. She asked Amy, she's like, what's this all about? Amy denied everything and said that she'd never gotten a cent more than the full $1,000 for the care of Franklin Andrews. But Pierce would not let up until Amy finally said, well, okay, yeah, he gave me the money, but it was a gift for the Archer home because he just loved it here so much. Just, it was a gift. It's gorgeous here. Why, the other day, they only hit me five times. <laughs> right? So they almost gave me a napkin with my dinner. <laughs> instead of making me use my nightgown. So uh, now Nellie Pierce is like, all right, I think it's time to get a lawyer involved here. So she hires a lawyer. Now, interestingly, the lawyer's name is W.H. Deeming, which Deeming is also John Seymour's middle name. Remember John Seymour, who was their first probably person that they, they took care of who, who died. And his, so his, that's his middle name. He got it from his mother. It was her maiden name. I kind of, I, I couldn't find the connection. There are a lot of Deemings in the Hartford area in Connecticut in general, it seemed at that time period. But I do think it would be interesting if there was some relation between the lawyer that Nellie Pierce hired to get this money back and the man who may have been the very first victim of Amy Archer Gilliam. Just kind of a funny thing, but small town's going to small town. So. so the lawyer tries to get a copy of the contract that Andrews had with Amy and Amy responded with a letter to Pierce saying that because the contract with Andrews had gone so poorly, she was never going to take a contract again. And, you know, there are two old people who really want to make a contract with me, but I can't now because you ruined it all with all of your ingratitude. She's horrible. She's horrible. I mean, it's not, we haven't even gotten to the real, like, how horrible she is, but just I hate her attitude and her constant attempting to guilt people and thinking that she can just berate them with, with she, she's very repet, repetitive. And if she just says things enough, 
That'll make them true, and that'll make everybody just just do what she wants them to do. I need to start doing that. I need to just <laughs> like I'm going to do my own narrative, and I'll just keep repeating it until it becomes the absolute God's honest truth. That's the it's the Amy Archer Gilligan program. Mm -hmm. Ten days to a more like manipulative you. <laughs> so the lawyer and Pierce ask for the five hundred dollars back, and they get a letter again from Amy. It's it's a lot of word salad. There's lots of again the repetition. And the, you know, castigating Pierce for being so ungrateful and horrible. And here is a quote, an excerpt, because, again, the repetition was just too much. I had to really sort through this. All he wanted you people to have was a trunk. And that scent, he never dreamed of your going to his room. And you are the only people who ever did such a thing. I should think you would be glad to have him happy here and do a little good. Those few dollars will never do you any good. They can't. You have wronged him and my home. I will look ahead and see how you, will you prosper by this. The poor man not dead a week. I hope you hear from him as he would want you to. Right, is she like trying to cast a ghost upon them? Yes. The very much. Fuck. She, okay, it gets actually more blatant in her next letter. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So she does pay back the $500 a month or so later, but she said it wasn't because she had to, but just because it wasn't worth the trouble. And here is an excerpt from that letter. This is fun. I've seen this one. I know this one. <laughs> Isn't it fun? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I want to stab this woman kind of way. So, and what did you do to ruin my home? My friends and my little daughter dependent on me for her care. Also the many other unfortunates. I will pray this morning that Almighty God, who knows how you and yours tried to destroy my home, may the curse of God come down upon each one of you and punish you by doing for you as you never had the slightest cause to try to do to us. Destroy your home, your name, if you have any. Take from you your means of livelihood. Separate you from your relations and friends. May this curse come at you at once that you may be made an example of. As for Mr. Andrews, I trust and know he will haunt the wicked wretches who will t tell the terrible falsehoods they have. You and all the demons living cannot destroy good work. You have tried it in the lowest, most wicked way. And now we will see how you will prosper. May Mr. Andrews haunt you until you make public your conduct. Jesus Christ. What a fucking nut. <laughs> Like, I mean, if her, if mental her illness is no joke. If her first husband wasn't murdered, I hope to God he killed himself just as an out. You know what? We haven't even thought about that. It's possible. <laughs> right? You're not wrong. But I cannot take one more iota of this. I'm going, I'm going wherever the rats go because they seem to be having a decent time. She just... She gets herself up into such a lather and it, it, it escalates too. You can see it escalating just from like hints that she thinks that Nellie Pierce's brother should haunt her to outright saying, I hope God curses you and I hope your dead brother haunts you, you demon. I wish my mom would haunt me. My mom, my <laughs> mom wasn't happy 
with with one of my decisions like about three months before she passed away i think everybody kind of knew she was dying and she goes if you do that i will haunt you and i said that's fantastic i get to do what i want and i get my mom back great do it (laughs) she never did and i did it anyway (laughs) so pierce nelly pierce and narcissa mcclintock of the previous lawsuit are both pretty instrumental in getting an investigation going about the goings on at the Archer home, especially Pierce. Now it seems like at first the district attorney kind of ignores them, but then they get the press involved, especially the Hartford current. And McClintock would later say that she regretted settling the lawsuit that she'd, she'd filed years ago because she wished it had gone to trial so that more stuff would come to light. So Hmm. in now, another one, as they started looking at deaths uh, at, that had occurred at the home, they started looking at another one that had occurred that very same year. Uh, about six months later, Alice Gowdy, who was 69 when she died on December 3rd. Now, she and her husband had moved into the house after Andrews had died, and later it would come out that Amy Archer Gilligan may have promised them Andrew's room before he was dead. That's very suspicious. Very suspicious. That's a new one. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) Like that. Yeah, that's good. You can look forward to hearing more of that, listeners. I think we have a new t-shirt. Very suspicious. Oh, God, I love it. Mm -hmm. Oh. So... Uh, they start looking at uh, Alice Gowdy's death as well. And both her and Andrew's bodies had been removed to the ho- from the house. And that, that removal, they had something in common there. Because there were permits required to remove a body from a home. And the undertaker did not have these permits until the next day or even the day after that. Now... Gowdy's cause of death was listed as cholera. The certificate said she'd been sick for six days. And a doctor noted that the acute gastric intestinal condition wore out the heart. And it was noted that her husband was was living at the home still. If I were him, I'd be scared. So as for the the body removal, neighbors actually kind of knew this was going on all along. Because they're neighbors and they would hear it happen. It would be the dead of night. Oh, God. <sighs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what? I'm not sorry. <laughs> I didn't do it on purpose, but I'm not sorry. It's okay. so, so they would be removed, and the neighbors would hear horse hooves. Then they'd hear that the horse hooves would come up to the house. They'd hear a wagon backing up to the house. It would creak as it backed up. It, the front door would open. And then there was the sound of men carrying something heavy down the front steps before the door slammed and the horse and wagon drove away. And that's when they knew that someone had died at the Archer house that day. Wow. Yeah. So they didn't have the permits generally. The undertaker was employed by Archer Gilligan. He would generally get the permit the next day, like I said. Now, this permit, I kind of looked into it a little bit. 
it, I mean, a it's it, it, some sort of like regulation is needed. Uh, you can't just be like taking dead bodies willy nilly. But also, it was it was really seemed to be a big part of it. Seemed to be to help stop the spread of communicable diseases, because a big part of the permit was ensuring that people who died of communicable communicable diseases, including cholera, which is what Gowdy was said to have died of were enclosed in a hermetically sealed coffin and the body disinfected. Hermetically sealed coffin. Just an oversized mayonnaise jar. We screwed the lid on real tight. Yeah. Now, so they didn't have the permit when they took Alice Gowdy's body out and she had died supposedly of cholera. That kind of like, was it hermetically sealed or were they just going to, if she had actually died of cholera, were they just going to spread infection willy-nilly about town? It didn't matter because she didn't die of cholera. So... (laughs) So yeah, and you're also, we're not allowed to just put heart failure as the cause of death. That was just an interesting note that I found. That's the cause of all death. I mean, well, yeah, at some point, yeah. So this investigation, as they're looking at these these deaths, it, it really gets going. The state police get involved. And it does take a while to really actually come to something, like I said. But by spring 1916, so just about two years after Franklin Andrews died, the authorities did a secret autopsy. Secret. Being very, secret. very it's, quiet with a scalpel. Don't make any sound. It's so spooky and like cloak and dagger, I guess, but cloak and scalpel. <laughs> so, and actually, Nellie Pierce, Andrews' sister, She's there for it. She takes him to the grave and points it out. And then I think I think she's actually there when they remove the organs. I'm not it's, I'm not 100% sure, but it, it, it seems to be implied. I'm surprised they let a woman do that. But it seemed like Nellie Pierce was my kind of woman. She was like, you know what? You're not telling me what to do. I'm, I'm going to do what I want. And you wouldn't even be looking at this if it weren't for me. So I'm going to stand over here. You do your job and just, you know, pretend to be okay with the fact that a woman is in the room. No. Yes. <laughs> I am Nellie Pierce, and I am telling you what's going to happen. So, so yeah, they go to the cemetery in the absolute dark of night, and they, they do all this very sneakily. They make sure that they, they park the, you know, their, their carriages and such somewhere where they won't be seen. They exhume the body of Andrews and another one that they won't talk about just yet. So there's a second body, somebody who had been a patient at the Archer home, but they're like, eh. even when stuff comes out, it takes a, when, 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 you know, everything finally comes to the light and it's in the paper and there's a four page spread. We don't know who the other person is for months after that. So they take the bodies to a tool house at the cemetery and they had to walk. Like, I think it was like three quarters of a mile, like carrying this, this body, uh, by the and then they go into the tool house. They have placed black cloths over the windows so that the light won't be seen. And even then, they o- only use an oil lantern and two electric flashlights. Which it was 1916, so I'm thinking not super powerful, you know. And they didn't have a proper table, so they made one. They took two barrels and then they grabbed some boards. They put the boards on top of the the barrels. And then they put the body on top of that. <laughs> now, they're not doing the, the full 
examination of the body, they're getting the organs out at this point in order for them to be tested by, you know, professionals and, and, and scientists and stuff. But the body was said to be remarkably well-preserved. Uh, quote, the mustache and hair were just as they had been at the funeral and hardly any change in the features except a slight sinking in of the eyes. And this is completely unrelated and has nothing to do with anything. But I, a fun fact, do you know that arsenic is a preservative? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, in Philippi, I believe Philippi, West Virginia, there was one summer that I just took a nice long drive over a couple of days. Uh, I guess I was about 19 or 20. And uh, one of my stops, I, I had several stops in just weird, weird spots. I went to see the grave of Stonewall Jackson's horse. And then right after that, Stonewall Jackson's arm. And then right after that, Stonewall Jackson, the rest of him. And then I went to Philippi, West Virginia, where some doctor uh, bought two dead women from the local asylum and uh, did some amazing, amazing work with them. Unfortunately, the, uh, this, was, this was back in the 1800s. And there was a flood in the 70s, and they, it turned them green. It turned out he used arsenic as, as the preservative. So, but to this day, you can still you can do what I do and pay, pay your money and go into a bathroom and see the mummies of Philippi, West Virginia. That is creepy. Yeah. I've been in a room alone with two dead women. Let the rumors begin. <laughs> so... So yeah, it's 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 two years after Andrew's death, and he's remarkably well preserved, which which might have something to do with the manner in which he died. Uh, the results of the eventual examination of the stomach and other vital organs was there was no evidence of gastric ulcers. However, there was evidence of arsenic poisoning. The other body, uh, which they still weren't naming, was said to have also died by poisoning, although. That one was not by arsenic poisoning, and they also uh, kept mum about that for for a while. They were they weren't they were really keeping secret about that second body. So, but here's the thing: they have evidence, and when you have evidence, what can you do? Evidence Arrest people. Oh shit! You can't do that too. Sorry. <laughs> yes. So they arrested Amy Archer Gilliger on Gilligan. Uh, on May 8th, 1916, with a charge of first-degree murder. Just one charge at the moment. She was said to have been really just cool as a cucumber or, you know, a, a corpse body? that's been dead yeah. for two years. Yeah, that's where I was going. <laughs> you, you got there before I got there. Um, while she was being questioned and when told she was going to be arrested, she said... I will prove my innocence if it takes my last mill. I am not guilty, and I will hang before they prove it. I still don't understand what my last mill is, but I know that mills are sometimes used in school taxes. That's all I got. I don't know. Maybe it's a mis misprint. Maybe she was bragging about being rich, my last million. Yeah, right? I mean, she does like to say, I am rich, and I will do what I want. So... They did let her change her dress before taking her to jail, and in true morbid 1916 drama queen form, she went into full mourning gear. Of course she did. Of course she did. <laughs> yes. So she goes to the jail. 
Now, the state of Connecticut uh, did not at that time allow bail for anyone charged with murder. So no bail, no chance whatsoever. I don't know if they do now or not because that's new timey crimes and this is an old timey crime. So it's not my business to know what they do now, only what they did 100 years ago. The state's attorney said they had evidence that pointed to Amy Archer Gilligan having committed many other murders. A state policeman told the press on the day of the arrest that they were thinking around 20 or so, but it would would later be questioned whether it was maybe somewhere more around, you know, 50, 60. And that's where we're going to end part one. That little revelation. (laughs) So part two next week, we'll have some real thrills and chills for you. More exhumations than you can shake a stick at. So in addition to a triple threat, uh, who this is a man who has three careers that if I told you two of them, you would not be able to fill in the blank on the third one. So stay tuned for that because it definitely was a, one of those moments when you're researching and you just burst out laughing. You're like, what the hell, olden times? What were you doing? What was that? So, and we might find out uh, whether Lucy Durand can ever truly escape Amy Archer Gilligan. I'm saying might for a reason. It's because I'm still trying to find some information on that. But uh, I think, yeah, I don't know. I'm very unsettled by not knowing uh, what happened to Lucy. And I'm going to try to find out, but I can't make any promises. So, yeah, there is all of that to look forward to. It's going to be an absolute banger of an episode. It's, it's, it's highs and lows and highs again. It's a roller coaster, thrills and chills, all those things I said. So, now, do you guys have anything I missed from up to the arrest? I think you've been incredibly thorough. Much more thorough than I have. Yes. <laughs> Possibly compulsively thorough. So yes. <laughs> I couldn't stop, honestly. So I was, it was, it's not even like I can't pat myself on the back for it because I was like, I think this is actually kind of uh, a problem. So, all right. On that note, one thing I'd really like you guys to do over the next little while and I can't remember exactly when this is going to air and I don't know exactly when I'm going to start, but we're going to be putting some stuff on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, We are old timey crimey on both. That uh, is going to be hints about a special project that I personally am doing, but it was uh, Scott and Amber's idea that one lucky fan will win. And if you have listened to our episodes you might have heard me talk about some of my interests, so maybe you can figure it out, but maybe not. And so you will really, really want to be looking at the social media to see what pops up there. I'm going to give little clues or depending on how far along I am when this episode airs, I might have already given some clues because we record like almost two weeks in advance. So, so yeah, definitely come check that out. And also come out, check out all the uh, the stuff that Scott is putting up on the the social media, media related to the case Definitely is very interesting to see. So, yeah, check that out. 
Uh, also, we talked about the Patreon at the top of the show. You should be a patron. You are missing out so much. Oh and we my have had our patrons tell us that. God, so much stuff is over there. Some of the some of the most fun cases. People stealing buses. Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to talk about whiskey and cannibalism. Oh boy! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we had a, a, a an actual hacking uh, story uh, a little while back, and yeah, it's we're we're having a, such a fun time over there, and so yeah, you should be. But if you're not, but you'd still like to support us, we really, really appreciate it. And if you want to do that, you can do that by sending us any amount of money, even you know one red cent via PayPal using our email address oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. There's also our merch uh, link is in the show notes of every episode. And so you can definitely come check us out there and see, you know, all the wonderful stuff that we have to offer. We have all kinds of different t-shirts and to different home items and different apparel items. Listen, so that's, uh, you need to ask yourself this question, listener. I need you to sit down and go, who has entertained me more, Leonardo DiCaprio or Old Timey Crimey? I think we all know the answer. It's Old Timey Crimey. Damn what, straight. What's Leo done? A few TV shows, a few movies. Maybe, maybe he entertains you for two hours once, once a year or something. Not us. Every damn week, two hours. You know? Why aren't we making Leo money? Make that happen for us. We live right? in Johnstown. Help us. <laughs> Please, God, help us. So, yeah, there's there's the um, old-timey... The, my brain just went bye-bye. Uh, redbubble.com slash oldtimeycrimey, I think, is it. Or oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. Or you can just go to the show notes. There's a link in every single show notes of every single episode. There's also a link, we haven't mentioned this in a really long time, but if you really want to determine the fates of our lives, if you want to be like a god to us, you can go to our Amazon wish list. Link is in the show notes. And pick out a book for us to read, and we will do a, an episode about that very case. Or if you have suggestions about particular cases or books that you would like us to pick up, you can also send those to oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. But I'm telling you what, once you buy us a book, we're committed and we have no choice. So work. I'm, no, I'm not going to make the joke. I'm not going to make the joke. But you can pick the episode by buying us a book. Exactly. I, I, okay. Mm, I shouldn't do it. We're committed like, we're committed no. like a Dugan sibling. <laughs> I need to drink all, that, all this fluid here, Christy. Forget, <laughs> forget if it tastes like ammonia and brake fluid. It's not. It's coffee. <laughs> Oh, anyhow, I'm going to hate that I said that for like a week and a half, maybe longer. Do it do it I more often. You'll start to feel like me and not give a shit. Yeah, yeah. Scott and I hit the don't give a shit segment of that. So. One of us, I guarantee, has to give a shit. And in any situation where that is the case, it's always me. Wow. So. That's true. That is true. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, check out that Amazon wish list. And uh, if I have any more bullshit, I honestly can't remember. So what are we doing this week, guys? I am uh, I'm enjoying my 3D printer a little too much. Not in the sexual level, but yet. it's yet. 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 
I am. They they just came out with a new 3D printer uh, that's $170, and I am trying to talk myself out of it. So I just continuously go, nope, don't need it. And I look at it and don't need it. What do I need a fourth 3D printer for? <laughs> oh, speaking of hoarding. <laughs> yeah, but it's the, it's the thing you can hoard that makes stuff more stuff for you to hoard. It's great. That is true. <laughs> My God. <laughs> How about you, Amber? I am looking for jobs. I got fired this week. They are dissolving our entire department. Don't you mean you get fired two weeks from now? I do. We got two weeks notice that we're fired. So everybody go be a Patreon so I don't have to get a new job. Right. All right. <laughs> right. Yeah, by the time this episode airs, it'll be much closer to that actually two weeks date. So. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> much closer. Uh, yeah, that was very nice that we at least got notice that we're fired, I suppose. They probably uh, did it just so that they could see all your faces at once to think of like what to think about whenever they masturbate later on that night. You know what? Like, okay, so I've never I've never had to do anything like this. Like I've never really been fired, but I've also never been fired on a fucking Google Meet. That is insulting. And then for them to be like, all right, everyone, turn your cameras on. You're fired. Like <laughs> Oh my mm. God. That is terrible. Mm. God. Wow. Amber and I used yeah. to work at the same place and I I bailed. Uh, and just, I'm kind of curious as to what's going on with the supervisors there. Cause some of the supervisors, I fucking hated, absolutely fucking <laughs> hated. And like, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a shit thing. Cause I hated these supervisors and, but I was nice to their face, but they shouldn't, they shouldn't have been doing what they were doing cause they, they were doing stuff openly that could ruin their public lives. And I'm just waiting to see them in public so I can ruin their lives. I, I know some of these stories. Um, so <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> but that's the, all right. So that, that's the one woman looked like it. Jabba the Hutt on two legs. All right. So uh, I'm going to be working on some detectives by the decade stuff. And I actually do, even after the ridiculous amount of research I did for this case that I did not expect. Uh, I still have a little bit to finish off to uh, kind of, you know, tie up some loose ends. So I'm going to be be doing that. And uh, we have a, a thousand piece puzzle that we're working on that I really need to finish because it's on our coffee table. And I believe we're going to be recording around that very coffee table in a week. Hooray! <sighs> Yay! Live in person recording again. I'm so excited to see your places. Yay. <laughs> Yay. So... Oh gosh, it's been, been a year. So, so yeah, that is uh, some of the stuff I'll be doing. And listeners, hey, look, I didn't call you readers by accident for some reason. It's the writer in me. Uh, listeners, thank you so much, seriously, for listening, for everything you do. Tell a friend about us. If you like us, your friends will probably like us. And uh, if, 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 if they hate us, then you have something that you can discuss and it'll be entertaining for both of you. And you can defend us. Defend us, damn it. So... Log cabin! Log cabin! <sighs> oh. Now my nipples are and, hard now. And on that note, thank you for listening to our filthy words. Bye! They're like two Bye. meaty diamonds poking out from my... 
My sources this week are Michael Newton and Encyclopedia of Modern Serial Killers via Murderpedia, Historic Buildings, Connecticut, Find a Grave, ConnecticutHistory.org, the New England Historical Society, the following newspapers from newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia, the Newtown Bee, Hartford Current, the Journal, and the Meriden Morning Record, as well as newspapers from the Library of Congress. My sources for this week are the ever-popular Wikipedia, the slightly less popular but still as important Murderpedia, the ConnecticutHistory.org article on Windsor's Murder Factory, ThoughtCo.com, and the just lovely, na- uh, lovely named NewYorkTimes.com article, Whatever Went Wrong with Amy, by Bill Ryan. <laughs> My sources this week are ConnecticutHistory.org, ThoughtCo.com, Murderpedia.org, Grunge.com, and some articles from Newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Chris Garcia.